1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm very proud to host today Professor Eunice Blaviskunas, who is joining me from Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, Professor Blavaskunas is the author of Foresters, Borders, and Bark Beetles, The Future of Europe's Last Primeval Forest, uh, which was published in 2020 by Indiana University Press. Uh, Just a few words about Professor Blavaskunas. She is Associate Professor of Anthropology and Environmental Studies at Whitman College in Walla Walla. She has held numerous prestigious fellowships including a Rachel Carson Center Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship, and a Switzer Environmental Leader Fellowship. She researches the politics of nature conservation and forestry, and has a keen interest in rewilding phenomena, both in Europe and in the US. Can I ask you just to start off, uh, uh, can you say a little bit more about what rewilding is for those in our audience who aren't that familiar with uh, nature conservation or ecology?
0: Sure. Rewilding is the idea that you uh, let go of certain domestic ideals about what a landscape could be. So it takes many forms, but across Europe, it's about de-domesticating animals and moving them around in the landscape. And in the U.S., it seems to be a lot about uh, moving large predators around, um, um, taking degraded ecosystems and restoring them but with um, sets of ecological relationships that are a bit predetermined.
1: Uh, the, this idea of degraded ecosystems being restored obviously gets us in some sense also to one of the uh, key themes of your book. I, found, I have to say, first off, that I found that this book read like a trade book. It was a very good read, and it was a very quick read in a good sense, where I felt like I really... Uh, got into all the stories you were telling, and I feel like I could easily uh, assign the whole thing to the right undergrad
0: class
1: (laughs) if there were a lot of interest in it. So my compliments, uh, because it was fun to read. Uh, And I wanted to ask, uh, is this the kind of book that uh, basically needed to be prepared over the course of many years? Or is it the type of book that could be written with a kind of bird's eye view, packed in more briefly, uh, with the with this sort of more focused? You know, is rewilding and thinking about it in Poland something that you could have done in a couple of years, or it needed a lot of time to percolate?
0: Oh, I think it needed a lot of time to percolate. Not only because I had been going to Poland for so many years, or other projects kind of derailed me, derailed the writing. But uh, I think the story is much richer if we think about this story as a transition, if we think about it as a period of post socialism, which unfolded uh, both in the forest and in the composition of the forest, but also what happens politically, uh, what happens socially with people. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me was what happens to people who were classified by the communist government as worker peasants. Um, when you have the rise of ecotourism in a totally different way than you had in the communist era. Um, who's moving to this area? Uh, how do people who have lived in this area for a few decades or even hundreds and hundreds of years, how are they sort of redefining themselves along the lines of, uh, you know, what, what is capitalism? What are the aspirations for the future? How should this forest be used and protected and visited by tourists? So I'm, I'm really happy uh, for any sort of delays that got in my way in terms of writing this book, because I kept finding ways to go back and do a little more research. And, oh, then this was happening and this was happening. And I can't stop the writing of this book now. So I feel like, yeah, I did need that amount of time. And, of course, any book can be written in a short window, but you get a different type of perspective when you do that. Well, I, I-
1: as a historian, obviously, I would also uh, say that that, that the, the accumulation of material, which you just described, at a certain point, we try to maybe artificially put a lid on it and say that's it. But when you're living the material as an ethnographer, obviously I'm not an ethnographer, but one of the virtues of this book is I feel like I'm living the material with you. When I'm reading through it, uh, there are individuals in your book, your protagonists who died. So in some sense, you have a, an organic bookend, so to speak, there for their stories, right? But uh, for the political side, and obviously post-socialism is a living, breathing phenomenon. Uh, goodness knows, I mean, we're, we're recording this. Uh, For those in the audience, the day after massive protests about whether or not Poland is going to exit the European Union and the European Union is also a big part of your story. But maybe I should just uh, step back for a second and say that, look, thinking about capitalism and post-socialism in Poland through the lens of Białowieża, is not something uh, that had occurred to me before. There was, you know, Żubrówka at my wedding, (laughs) and I I love Hajnówka. I love, I've been, I I have family who live not too far from there, but I had never thought about Białowieża as this kind of extraordinary microcosm for exploring the different disciplinary and uh, really humanistic perspectives On the region so what led you to look for capitalism and post-socialism in the primeval forest
0: oh well you know i think when you read the book you realize i don't go there looking for one thing or the other it's kind of a, a series of accidents but also i mean along the way i'm also always in conversation with environmental historians um and at the core of environmental history is this idea that uh the natural world or forests or rocks or whatever it is, play a role in history and its unfolding. So in many ways, you know, I haven't been trained as an environmental historian, but I've been in conversation with environmental historians for a long time. They've been part of the way I think. Um, so it, it it almost seems intuitive to me at some point, it, you know, as I develop as a scholar, that this is really the only way to tell that transition is to tell it in relation to what is the composition of tree species, of bark beetle, of dead woody debris on the forest floor, and how does that inflect upon what people imagine as being communistic or capitalist or capitalistic? Um, Yeah.
1: I, th- I mean, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Obviously, this is born also of your own direct experience. Uh, your uh, first contact with Białowieża was in the mid-1990s. Uh, this this may be kind of a, uh, a silly impressionistic question, but what would you say the biggest changes were that took place while over the years that you've been going
0: back? Oh. Well, changes... With humans and the non-human world is that I remember seeing people, uh, especially young kids, running barefoot, uh, taking cows back from the meadow and seeing whole families scything hay at the boundary of the forest. And now with the loss of agriculture in the forest meadows, which was never that productive. I mean, as I talked to people, I learned it's really hard to farm when the boar try to come and eat your... Uh, vegetables <laughs> and the deer and everything else. But what's happened is that bison, these woodland bison have come out of the forest into the meadow. Um, now that people by and large have stopped farming. Um, so that's occurred. But I also saw the loss of a number of very old trees in the forest. Um, you know, you could see this on the Shafa reserve as you're driving into Um And then, um, Wow. I mean, certainly humans and ecosystems together are very dynamic. Um, you know, I saw sort of wars over dead woody debris on the forest floor. And for people who haven't read the book, I mean, dead trees uh, toppled over on the forest floor can provide a lot of nutrients to the ecosystem. They can provide uh, areas for lynx to run over, small mammals to go under. They retain a lot of moisture in the landscape in a climate that's drying out. So, uh, you know, as, as the capital uh, uh extends, we also see climate change extending and that means hotter, drier summers. And I know people, if they're listening in Europe, totally know what I mean. And so that oh, yes. means the spruce are toppling over spruce, which were uh, heavily planted in the 20th century Uh, what does that mean is this forest i mean this forest also has many oaks 500 year old oaks lindens hornbeams is it a deciduous forest is it a um you know um, a forest with pines and spruce uh what sort of compositions should there be i mean these very kind of ecological and management questions are at the core of how people have been identifying what they are fighting over in this forest and those are fights about politics so uh those are the kinds of changes i've seen over the last 25 now gosh more years
1: this uh, reminds me of the category you mentioned a few minutes ago the worker peasants because there are a lot of different social groups in play actually there's far more uh, in play at some some local some imported some uh, obviously there's a lot of touristry but the idea of let's say, maintaining worker peasants and also maintaining gentry, even if it's more in terms of cultural legacies and everyday practices. Uh, once the communist system collapsed, uh, there's a, a I, I, you know, this study by Longina Jakubowska, Patrons of History, wow. and something that's helped me in my own work, uh, which she basically focuses on uh, Polish gentry through a series of political orders, and looks, for example, at how uh, the construction of the communist order benefited from uh, appropriating certain practices and certain cultural norms of the gentry. Is there really class warfare in Biawovieza? Ooh! ooh, wow.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a historical argument um <laughs> I don't think I made intentionally it. provocative oh, and of course oh. i
1: mean to be fair we could distinguish different time periods here because oh, it sorry. would be strange to say that there's class warfare uh before 1989 but maybe that's another change you've seen okay. i'm just curious what you think yeah i
0: mean i just want to acknowledge another scholar who's helped me think about that and that's uh tomas zaritsky uh who wrote um Totem Intelligentsia, and in a number of uh, books about and articles about the legacy of the aristocracy. Does the aristocracy die when communism is put in place, or not? Or how does the new, how do the new communist apparatchiks appropriate the customs and manners of the aristocracy? Um, so, you know, class warfare is also a Marxist term, and. You know, you think then whose term should I use to apply what's happening in the present moment? I mean, there are certainly class antagonisms going on, um, and uh, but one of the you know interesting ideals of the the capitalist moment is that oh that doesn't really exist. Everybody's just kind of a an independent agent, and if you're smart, you can pull yourself up from the bootstraps and become an entrepreneur. But I mean. The vieja is infused with classism right now, and this is through a sort of visiting elite um, that can afford some very expensive restaurants that are there, um, hotel options um, for people who haven't been there, who haven't read the book. I mean, the Old vieja went from being, uh, well, first a, a royal hunting ground, Polish kings and then Russian czars, to this real kind of backwards outpost. I mean, the interwar period is still um, Polish presidents uh, hunting there. But in the communist period, uh, it seems to be neglected or forgotten somehow. There are naturalists that visit, um, but only people who go there because they really love birds and mosquitoes and forest ecosystems. And then by the mid 2000s, wow, do we ever see the return of elegance to this place. Um, And, you know, many local people become wealthier than they were, I would not call them wealthy, but people went from not owning a car and to, uh, you know, using bed and breakfast money and businesses and loans to take a vacation in Italy or Egypt. And I think that felt really good to people. I think they were really proud of that ability to uh, increase their social status. But then there were also many people in the book who don't benefit from that at all and don't quite have the social skills. Um, So yeah, I would say there are ongoing class antagonisms, but the classes are not identical to what they were, sort of pre-communism or during the communist period. We're seeing new classes of people.
1: Uh, let, let me maybe ask about two specific individuals because they're among the folks you highlight in your book I'm thinking of uh, Simona Cossack of course and um, Leszek, uh the man of the forest uh, the the Cossack name is a name that obviously uh, I think many folks who know Contemporary Poland would have encountered through the Panorama Radziwiłtka, <laughs> through the, the 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 family of painters, right? But um, uh, but this is a major figure, a towering figure, and in some sense uh, a really unique and almost mythologized figure the the link sleeping in the bed and the complete lack of any technological uh, entanglements uh, can you say a few words just to introduce for those who haven't um, seen your book yet uh, yeah this powerful scientific figure
0: yeah well uh you know it's very funny the way i come to know simona so i'm working at the u.s forest service in washington state and these Polish foresters come to visit us, um, and they tell us about the all forest, but then through somebody who works at the World Bank, I get Simona's name and phone number. <laughs> and I, I set off to Poland in 1995 because I, I want to see what this kind of post-revolutionary world is all about. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm in Wrocław uh, staying with somebody's mother, just a weird connection, and we visit the panorama in Wrocław. So, but I don't immediately associate this woman I'm about to meet with this painter. I don't, I forget if, forgive me if that's Wojciech or. Wojciech, yeah. Wojciech who painted that, yes. So like I go to Bielwege in 1995, somebody picks me up from the train station in Bialystok and I, first place I'm taken is to Simona Kosak's cottage. And you know, I don't, I really am totally clueless, which in some ways is part of the mysticism that I unfold in the story, like. Simona is somebody I admire and I'm totally intrigued by. And she has this sensibility and this way about her, which is very commanding, but also uh, intriguing. You know, she wants to take me to the intrigue of the forest. And within the first few days of being in Biao Vieja, we go to this Miesze Moze, this place of power, which is, you know, totally undeveloped. If you go there today, there's a tour sign pointing you there and uh uh she's trying to explain this place to me vis-a-vis uh, the the configuration of trees growing in pairs out of one trunk and uh, there's I, I don't totally get it but there's some stones in the ground and she's using her very limited English to say something like Stonehenge I get that there are, there's been dowsing there there's some kind of energy so the story as it goes is that, You know, I have a relationship that starts with Simona as a very central figure and somebody who I think is going to lead me places. But then it's also one of a great deal of tension the more number of years that I go there. Simona has this animal rights stance and I am at first sort of under her tutelage for a year during my master's thesis. But then I decide I want to expand and work with other scientists who are there, who she has these real antagonisms with. Um, and then I start, you know, listening to all the gossip about Simona and who she is and what she did. And it was a very difficult chapter to write because in so many ways, I still really admire this person. But the the, the line of the story is that in some ways she's perceived as facilitating a kind of communist cronyism that she seems to uh, be so against. In
1: that sense, she's part of this uh, story of the gentry that got appropriated into the communist ethos or even instrumentalized somewhat. I I don't want to be uncharitable, but I'm just curious because that is the implication I get from your chapter about her.
0: Yeah, and like the more I think about her and the story, that's the way the chapter gets written. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And that's, man, that's complex. And that's what the political tensions of the last 10 years, at least, have been about. Right. Um, Yeah. Like, who was a communist? Did the uh, heroes of solidarity collaborate with the communist government? And then, you know, it flips uh, a few chapters later to, uh, you know, who is Levatstvo? Who are these pinkos, uh, the environmentalists? Um, so I, I trace these tensions between uh, who, is a, who was a communist, who is gentry, uh, what does it mean to be international in this moment? Those, all, those ideas all move across the book.
1: Yeah. Well, class antagonisms, I think, are very much, and of course, they don't have to mean the same thing at different contingent moments. They wouldn't. But yeah. uh, it, I'm struck, you know, just the, the juxtaposition, if I think of Cossack uh, on the one hand and Leszek Shumovich on the other, because Shumovsky, Shumovsky excuse me, Leszek Shumovsky on the other, he, he becomes this figure for you in terms of the post-peasant uh, I don't know if if you would necessarily describe him as a worker peasant uh, or the I mean because uh, for those who, ha- who haven't read the book the 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 phrase that I think that I found most striking uh, for Leszek, is and, and you talk about him by, fir- by by his first name all the time is man of the forest that in some sense you know the surname doesn't matter because he transcends these kind of uh, no traditional nomenclature and uh on the one hand, I'm very sensitive to the idea of the gentry and its entanglements in uh, the communist era and also in the people who work the land. But um, how does he figure for you? Is, is he a one-off or can he be generalized, if you will, it, within this sort of matrix that you've been thinking about and ruminating on in, yeah. in class terms or otherwise?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Leshek is certainly unique, <laughs> I didn't meet anyone else like him, but I wanted to use him in the book to talk about the ideals that people have for this place. Um, the ideals that you could come to a primeval forest and find a sort of primitive man of the forest. Um, but he totally comes from this peasant root, um, from the worker route. I mean, his dad was a logger Um you know, his mother was a, a Belarusian peasant. Uh, and so, but he's only able to be this figure, the man of the forest, because he's networked himself with a lot of important people, with filmmakers, with Adam Vaidrak, who's this famous environmentalist in the Old um with myself. Uh, he talks about knowing um, Lech Wałęsa, the director of the Warsaw Zoo. I mean, he's constantly... Showing me how connected he is, but always wanting to let us know that he's something exceptional. Uh, but if you look at what the gentry—I, I don't know if I can still use this word—but the, the new, maybe the, the nouveau riche, the people with money who are visiting this era area, they come in with uh, wanting to replay fantasies about who is gentry and who is peasant, and. Uh, you know, the story I tell through Leszek is one both of of Polish peasantry, but also one of local people who are from this place who were never true peasants. And that's a very interesting category, that they've always been given some sort of royal right to settle, that they were the king's beaters, that they helped with the hunt, um, that they were noble in some way. So then if we think about who is gentry, who is peasant, who is petty gentry, Um, You know, we can't let go of that historical figure in all of this. I think Leszek is unique. He's one off, but he's also very generative of the meaning of these social relationships. And that's what I so love about being the ethnographer is that you get to know people in these intimate ways, some of whom tell you to get out of here and others who sort of invite you into their world. But you begin to understand the tensions within a society through certain people who befriend you, and I, I have to say that Leshek was a was a real friend of mine, and, and that's very endearing. In a different way, that Simona was not, um, and I still admire Simona. But um, yeah, there, there's there are figures in this book that help me see those uh, gentry peasant uh, historical relationships, and Leszek was a good one for that.
1: At Evernorth Health Services. Your casting, especially of Leszek, uh, reminds me that when I was reading your book, on many occasions I was thinking about Pantadoukh, and yeah. not just because of Sobliczovo, yeah. <laughs> right? The uh, the uh, the faux recast hotel for uh, for wealthy visitors and folks who want to take those uh, those you know uh, very carefully managed and curated trips into the Belarusian side, but also. Because Leszek, for me, recalls the the shlachta to a T. So that's partly actually why I asked the question about post-peasant identity. Because in some sense, by being attached to the post-peasant identity. But in this cosmopolitan way you were describing a minute ago, he really inscribes himself for me into... Uh, very early 19th century kind of trope, uh, literary, social, right? The folks, left o- the leftover, if you will, the leftover identity. But in some sense, also the, uh, the, the shared border with Belarus and the transition from Soviet Belarus to uh, transition such as it was to Lukashenko. I was reading this book not long after the, the massive protests started, last year. And I'm curious if you feel like that meant anything at all within the Bielowieża region, because there's this emphasis uh, in, in, in uh, certain parts of the book on uh, right, the folks from here, which also is a very sort of long-term historical social category of significance, uh, in the sense of not wanting to speak to broader trends, but being really embedded in uh, complicating and problematizing and breaking norms uh, in a way that that shows a lot of the continuities that you were just talking about, whether left over from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or really uh, showing that some of these constructions are artificial on the Polish-Belarusian uh, border. I'm, I'm just curious. Um, to stick with Leszek for a second, could he have grown up in uh, on the Belarusian side or could he have fun- functioned on the Belarusian side and been more or less the same? Or did he really have to be uh, ultimately Polish?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I don't want to speak directly for the way people living in Beelvesia today interpreted the events in Belarus, because I haven't been there in three years, so I don't want to get myself in trouble. But what was so surprising to me when I was there was how much people talked about what it meant to be Belarusian on the Polish side of the border, what that idea of Belarus meant, but then just an un- unknowing of what was happening in Belarus in many ways. Um, nobody ever talked about um, the accords which dissolved the Soviet Union, which took place in the Bielaviskaya pushcha on the Belarusian side. So I don't think, I think Leszek became Polish with this undergrounded Belarusian identity and, um, an identity that was always present, always part of tutaise, but in so many ways was polonized. And I don't want to see that polonization as complete or that there's ever some kind of pure ethnic identity because this term tutaise means I am from here. But there was certainly in the interwar period, um, you know, a time when... uh, Belarusians were associated with the Soviet Union, they couldn't get jobs in state forestry as school teachers, um, there were language schools that opened and then closed, um, and then the communist period, nobody's supposed to be talking about who's Belarusian, who's Polish, so this kind of suppression of ethnic identity that then finds some flourishing in the post-socialist period, but for people who have mixed ethnic heritage there, uh, there's certainly an ideal that it's better, I think, to be Polish. Um, And not, of course, amongst everyone. But we have to understand the way that dominant trend works in terms of when is it okay to speak, um, you know, our own language. Is that appropriate in shops where there's mixed identity? Is it only if you belong to the Orthodox Church? Um, You know, and then it would become interesting for me, who would sing uh, songs that were associated with, you know, being in this place forever? Who would say, oh, those songs are really Soviet songs? What sort of Polish songs would get sung? I mean, Leszek talked about himself a lot as, as being Polish. I mean, he was very clear about this Belarusian heritage, but it wasn't in a way that certainly certain identity activists, Belarusian identity activists in cities were doing. Um, people like Sokrat from Krinki, um, people in Hainufka or, you know, other nearby towns that really wanted to visit Belarusian cultural centers and make sure that their kids went to a language school. I mean, Leszek didn't have any children who lived with him. The book sort of identifies that he has one child that's um, living far from him that he never really knew. Um, so that's also not an issue for him Uh, reproducing ethnicity in that way. Um, I can imagine also, you know, when when Poland became part of the EU, there used to be a lot of Belarusian traders that could be found in the town of Hainówka. And then they suddenly also just disappeared. There's this new open border that's for tourists. So you mostly have Polish tourists going into Belarus. I saw very few Polish Belarusian tourists coming into Poland. So that's that's also this Soplisovo or the ideal that um, what it means to be Polish could potentially mean to be multi-ethnic but the ideal of being Polish is on the one hand is not just this right-wing version it could mean a Mickiewicz um, um, idea that there are many languages and cultures tied into the Polish nation. Um, And I want to keep that afloat, not as a way to colonize what it means to be Belarusian, but as a way of also showing people that uh, national identity or what it means to be a citizen of a certain nation hasn't always meant the same thing historically. And I think that's important, not for a kind of chauvinism of what some sort of Polish greatness of the past was, but for a potential to... uh, provide more possibility within a nation that has or a a certain um, language that's primarily spoken today. Um, And I think that's, this is a really important moment to be highlighting a figure like Leszek, who did so much to sort of play in that world. I mean, in some ways, he's a victim of history, but he's also has so much agency. And I always want to employ his ideas and his words to lead us in that direction. Um, so I hope that's what I'm trying to do in that chapter, as well as one that comes later about um, playing with the idea of Belarusianness at the Polish Belarusian border, on the Polish side of the border.
1: I, I mean the way you just explained, I think also casts him very powerfully as a as a figure for for much broader forces in the sense, you know, the word borderlands uh, has become a a, a real trope and often a a kind of a knee-jerk trope, I would say, uh, in the past 20, 30 years uh, across some of the disciplines in the humanities and social sciences. In this particular region, for me, one of the canonical works is uh, Timothy Snyder's Reconstruction of Nations, and the way that you described this kind of non-monolithic sense of national attachment, right, where you don't have to choose, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Because there is a shared past and there are distinct identities, but there's also crossover. And uh, if we start Xing parts of that matrix out, then we're Xing out parts of ourselves. Uh, for me, that really comes through in the figure of Leszek. So I definitely saw that in the book. I'm curious how uh, outsiders fit in, though, because that's, of course, part of the. The, the borderlands problem is that people are passing through or they're popping in and popping out in the case of, of tourists. And there are two different kinds of, of casts there that that strike me. One, I remember the way you described having dinner at former Prime Minister Chimošević's cabin. And I was thinking to myself when you were uh, speaking earlier in, during the interview about uh, the return of public figures to Białowieża, if you're a former prime minister, do you need to have a cabin <laughs> in Białowieża? And what does that do for this sense of tutejšość and the tutajsi there?
0: Yeah, well, you know, Cimošević identified as having Belarusian roots, so I think that's really significant. Um, but yeah, tutejši, you know, I don't know enough historically about who intermarried with who at some certain moment, but like everywhere, I'm sure that there were intermarriages across class, across ethnicity. I mean, we know a lot about Poles and Belarusians. Um, I mean, I feel like the missing piece of my book is the Jewish past or the Jewish history in this region, which was really significant as a timber history. But yes, borderlands are places that get crossed, and that have lots of mixture. So how does that play out in a moment, a political historical moment in which people want to believe in some kind of pure ideal of what it means to be Polish or Belarusian? And I saw that play on both sides, but they're not sides with equal amounts of power. Um, So at that local regional, and sometimes, uh, you know, there are People who are really confusing for me also um, about which side are you on um, uh, in terms of your own ethnic identity. And uh, I think this this comes out in the book about the rise of ONR. And, um, oh. you know, th- th- there are people with mixed ethnic identity who really want to look to the past and talk about the cursed soldiers and the way that they are heroic in some way, but people who really strongly identify as Belarusian or Tutaise want to say these cursed soldiers pacified whole Belarusian villages in this region. Um, So yeah, I think the work of historians and anthropologists is to guide people into this past and of course, we are never totally neutral, but if we're working only in the service of some kind of politics or nationalist ideal, I think we're we're really doing our craft in the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Yeah,
1: this is. Say, speaking to uh, the realities of 2020 and 2021. Yeah. I, I, all the all the colleagues I speak to from the region, but um, but I mean, and, and in that, in some sense, that's you know why I I'm 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 so glad. To see the book, but also that it touches on an on a on an angle that's less uh, less often considered uh, for me. But I, I you know I want to take you back to what you said about the missing piece, uh, the Jewish story, because I was thinking about this also. Uh, and I'm glad you brought up oned There is a constructed Jewish other, obviously, in the rise of whether it's local or imported from other parts of poland uh far-right activism some of it connected to uh I Sprawiedliwość, some of it not and uh it strikes me also you know after all you you, you mentioned the university Powszechny yeah. a lot i know it was very important for you personally adam weirak uh, obviously plays a big role in, in 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 your book and and more generally i think in 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 your story with the region I'm curious if uh, there is a sense of uh, I mean, either in terms of what you saw in your fieldwork or what you see sort of reflecting now that the book is done, where the the legacy, the Jewish legacy, whether actual historical or purely constructed, and I know that actual historical also is a construction, obviously, so, so it's maybe a false dichotomy, but on the other hand, on er, Activists who have absolutely no direct experience whatsoever of uh, local Jewish population versus some idea that, oh, well, this aspect of Solidarność's legacy is bad because it's tainted somehow by cosmopolitanism, where cosmopolitanism has an anti Semitic flavor to it, too. Uh, I'm just curious how you would make sense of that. I'm not asking you to write the the missing Jewish part of the book back in, but if you look at it from the standpoint of the end of the book, of Um, what's been going on in the past five to ten years, uh, is that really one of the dominant tropes in spite of what we've been discussing?
0: Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean... Again and again and again, um, there were people opposed to nature conservation who had kind of political positions who wanted to talk about a Jewish conspiracy on the part of nature activists or, you know, a kind of Warsaw elite that wanted to better preserve this place. Um, So that's underlying. I think my own apprehension about really writing effectively was that I felt like I would need to be a historian or I would need to ask questions in a different way than I had been asking them. So I just sort of nod in a few short ways in the book to that tension and to the history behind Owen Ayer and Roman Dmowski and the kind of poisonous idealizations about which ethnicities or nations can be ingested into what it means to be a pole and which need to be excised or cut out. Um, I also want to nod to the important work of Katarzyna Vinyarska, who was um, a teacher at the Universitet Popsekne, Um, and she's married into the Kuron family that I write about in the book. Um, she is a uh, you know, she she doesn't have an advanced degree, but she has been doing all of this groundwork to uh, find information about the Jewish past, to um, interview people in Israel, in the U.S. I mean, survivors of the Holocaust who came from Bielowieża who are now in their eighties or nineties. Um, she's created a online museum of these resources. Um, I always knew about a uh, a site where both. Belarusians and perhaps Poles and Jews were executed, this kind of mass execution site during the Nazi occupation, German occupation. Um, But there was no memorial there to Jews. It just said uh, Poles and Belarusians died here. Um, There was a big kind of metal eagle. It was a sand pit that was dug out. And I know that she's done work to um, memorialize that place to, add a Star of David, um, to bring people into dialogue about what that Jewish past has meant. Um, So I wish I could, um, that that might be, you know, a next project, Um, but I wasn't able to do it with enough precision to do it well. Um, And so I hope, although it may be possible that people really see that as a flaw of the book, and I just want to apologize for that, but also to stress my limitation of capacity and really accessing that story and doing it in an accurate way.
1: I think that would make a wonderful follow-up project. And I, I completely, I mean, I, I, it, it, not having worked directly there myself as a researcher, I can see the time and the depth in a slightly different direction that would be required. Uh, are you thinking of doing that follow-up? <laughs> well, no, no, no commitment required. <laughs> um, I'm
0: not on the top of my list. Um, I'm really interested in rewilding phenomenon, but yeah, maybe. My next article okay. is three years away, so we'll see. I understand. I
1: understand. Uh, uh, we have about 10 more minutes, so there are maybe two or three other things that I want to touch on. I actually haven't talked much. Obviously, I'm a historian, so uh, you can see my uh, so-called déformation professionnelle. I keep dragging you back into history. But why don't we talk for a second, uh, in more anthropological terms, how you feel that looking at a primeval forest and the way it's narrativized, and the way that its historical narratives are reconstructed and reconstructed in light of contemporary politics, which especially is where your book ends, uh, translates back and what kind of implications it has for thinking about the way you you sort of position early in the book historical time on the one hand and deep time on the other. In other words, uh, if I can put this a little bit naively, Does it matter to the forest in deep time terms what the narratives are? This is an environmental historian's question, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, who can speak for the forest? Um, I mean, I'm very influenced as an anthropologist by what's called the ontological turn. So this is the idea that anthropology moves from only studying humans to seeing the agency of non-humans. And here... We have the forest. Um, and of course this forest has been in existence as a forest since the end of the Ice age, you know, and it wasn't industrially logged until World War one. So the forest has a lot of memory, it has a lot of integrity, but I also think the forest is never inert backdrop. It is always, acting on people, too. I mean, it has agency. So the, you know, the reason I kept going back to Biovieja where these bark beetle outbreaks, and bark beetle is in the title of the book. What's that all about? Well, this is a native bark beetle uh, that has been in existence as long as the forest has been in existence, but it only preys on on spruce trees. So it weakens the tree Um, You have outbreaks every few years, and some years they're worse than others. Um, So it's especially uh, troubling uh, in in an era of climate change, but troubling as the forest has been also co-created or co-constructed by foresters. And this argument always gets me into trouble with my uh, nature conservationist friends who want to say, well, this is a primeval forest. Like it was not constructed by humans. And I agree, you know, mostly, but I also want to show like, but but it's only the type of forest it is because you had czars hunting there that brought in the, the you know, the type of deer that were exotic and that shot a certain number of bison every year. And they that uh, hired beekeepers to create some fires in the forest that hollowed out the trees. So, you know, environmental historians always want to show this dance between the human and the non-human. And you can't always get nature to do what you want it to do. So foresters um, have been trying to construct this forest. Um, I mean, you could look at that very serious break um, as to when the forest is industrially logged. So, start of World War I, but you could also go back a little further. I mean, there are certainly, there's some forestry, there's some potash production. Um, You know, foresters are both watching the royal game and making sure there's enough, but doing some small moderations. But the whole history of the 20th century is about constructing a forest in the ideal of the foresters uh, model. And then you know, you could say, well, how successful was that, given that you still have these patches of old forest within what is state forestry lands? You have this huge, not huge, but large enough national park that things can move out of. You know, it's not just like in the national park, you have more oak and linden or old pine trees and more deadwood wood debris. I mean, there are animals that move between the state forest and the logged forest. So, I think it's important to always know that uh, the historical time is not just the moment at which uh, the forest becomes managed. Um, The historical time is the short time. We don't totally understand the deep time of this forest, but it's there. And I think there must be elements to this forest, which in some kind of DNA way uh you know know what's going on the these the stuff that makes up the trees that flows in the water um these are old materials and we don't fully understand them so maybe i'm going back to simona kosak and her mystical visions of this place uh but as an environmental historian i want i want people to see that The forest is not just being acted upon in historical time. It is also doing acting. These bark beetle outbreaks cause a strong reaction by um, um, peace, uh, by foresters who want to then attack the bark beetle, by the nature activists who show up and have their own ideals about what it means to be cosmopolitan, international. Um, Yeah, there has to be this. Uh, weaving of both in in a narrative that comes out of this forest. And that's my commitment as an anthropologist of the non-human and the human, or more than human, as we like to say.
1: Well, that said, it. It, it strikes me that there there's an engaged aspect really at the intersection of the two. And I mean, in that sense, I, I, I guess we have to come back to politics to end the conversation because first of all, we're in the thick of it, so to speak. Uh, I think anyone who is watching uh, Poland and Eastern Europe in, in, in uh, October of 2021, but also the fact that uh, deep time for all of its mystique and all of its power and all of its agency, which we even can't even get to, has the potential to be ended by historical time in some sense. And I think of this – I'm a scholar in part of of religion and of religious thought. And there's an apocalypticism that strikes me when I think about a primeval forest simply being logged because – Human contingent human agency in a very particular moment or the narratives being constructed can really be responsible for undoing something that so profoundly transcends our own individual or even collective human experience, right? Uh, And in that sense, I'm of two minds about the story ending with law and justice, partly because on the one hand, Law and justice really was logging and really was threatening the UNESCO designation and really was threatening everything you were just describing. Uh, But by the same token, they are a political party. So how do we escape being trapped in uh, contemporary politics as a kind of payoff Mm -hmm. from this sort of powerful series of telescoped lenses? that I see in your book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to tell everybody just go to this forest. <laughs> don't don't read the book, just be in the forest and see all of its complexity. But yes, I also hope that in the very very last chapter, people get or they read that I'm fully committed to protection for this forest. And, you know, the model that we have however imperfect it is, is the national park model right now for this whole forest. Um, That, I mean, a forest ecosystem that has some integrity, as this one does, even though there are parts of it which seem so crippled by uh, the extreme logging, by the unnecessary logging, um, I think this forest still has the potential to... uh, regrow, to regenerate, but that's not going to happen as long as humans are constantly there with a managerial agricultural model of growing trees and growing trees is the most important. And I, I just, I think one of the solutions that not enough people have looked towards, a solution for like, for, for jobs of foresters, um, is there's all this agricultural land outside of the Białowieża forest. I mean, we could really think about expanding this zone. We could think about if we really need, there's lots of trees grown in Europe. I mean, lots of trees all over Poland, Sweden, elsewhere. But if you want to keep people working in state forestry there, I mean, one could purchase agricultural land and slowly grow this forest out and out and out and then grow that... um, uh, Let's use the word pristine, um, you know, this kind of pristine national park area. Um, let that grow. Think of small nudges for like how to restore the hydrology of this area. Um, I mean, the area had been so long drained. How do we think about uh, getting water to stay in the landscape through having dead trees on the ground, through building more forest cover in areas that have been clear cut, um, I mean, all of those things need to be thought of and need some kind of human care and intervention. But I think unless we have a, a few places in the world that are that have really have a lot of biological integrity that are related to something that's very ancient, very old, very primeval, I think we're lost. We're lost spiritually. We're lost as cultures. I feel very committed to that. And I hope in some way that my book leads people there, even though I don't, you know, go off on uh, the only story of this place is a story of this primeval nature. I want I want the story to be more than that.
1: I think that's a wonderful note on which to end. It's also, I think, a hopeful note, uh, which I want to preserve. Uh, Let me thank you, Professor Blavaskunas, uh, for speaking to our uh, New Books in East European Studies audience. Uh, Again, the book is called Foresters, Borders, and Bark Beetles, The Future of Europe's Last Primeval Forest. And it came out in 2020 with Indiana University Press. Uh, Thanks very much. It's been wonderful talking with you.
0: Thank you so much.